Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Marion Boyer. Marion is a retired communications professor who taught at the Kalamazoo Valley Community College for decades. She has written five poetry collections, three full-length collections, and two chapbooks, including her most recent one, Ice Hours, which won Michigan State's Wheelbarrow Poetry Prize and was released in January of this year. She served on the board of the Kalamazoo Poetry Festival for several years and co-chaired the planning committee. Her poetry and essays have been published widely in presses and literary magazines across the country, and she participates actively in both the Lit Youngstown and Lit Cleveland writing scenes, actively teaching classes in the latter. Marion, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. I appreciate being here. Could you please start us off with a poem? I'd be glad to. Um, this is a poem from my book, Ice Hours, in the voice of the continent of Antarctica. Perhaps I was Eden. I was tropical once, warm with the warming effect of clouds. My lands were fern forests. Araucaria trees rose high. Baobabs grew fleshy fat with water and rains came and drifted and came. Warmth transported me. Slow rivers spooled soft. Pink golden mists of pollen wafted across deep valleys. Rain muttered refrains. The green veils shifting across the glinting nights are my dreams of that emerald time. My days are a season long. Night lasts half the way around our star. There is no mythology here, only epics. It was ever slow, then slower, leafy. Perhaps I was Eden. I remember a sweet summons, something silken, secret, the sigh and sob of sea swells, small spasms, an ache, snow. A massive weight covered me, groaning. A rhythm of crescendo, arching. I remember mountains rose, a tectonic lifting, molten lava. The last to survive were beech bushes. Then the cool feathers of drowsing, a slowed pulse fog. There is no mythology here. My mountain still breathes. Plumes rise. I was tropical once. Then I became so cold, I stripped off my clothes and burrowed beneath a shield of ice. Oh, I love it. That's beautiful. I it, That's a Thank poem you. that really does benefit from hearing you the poet read it it's like, <laughs> I mean I didn't notice it when I was reading through because you but you when you introduce the eye you have all those s's in a row you have the, the like mm -hmm. sounds the section and then you when, when you hit the tectonic you really go after those consonants and it's just it's it's so cool it's so fits your voice thank you Jeremy thank you while I'm heaping it on compliments do you want to know what I love <laughs> what I love about your bio <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think more people should do this. You outline the communities that you're a part of. I think that's such a good idea. It It's, 
it's nice to know that you're active in Lit Youngstown and Lit Cleveland. It's nice to know, you know. Oh, well, honestly, Lit Youngstown and Lit Cleveland sort of saved me. Um, I lived, as I told you previously, 40 years in Kalamazoo and was a big part of that community. And then moved here five years ago to Ohio and I just tried so hard to connect with poets, but I knew no one. And once I found Lit Youngstown and Lit Cleveland, I just felt saved. <laughs> and um, they've been wonderful. I'm still connected in Kalamazoo, but to know, to be active here in Ohio is just terrific. So they're, they're important to me. Well, that's fantastic. How, how did you, how did you first find those groups? Oh, <laughs> I have a lot of stories of funny <laughs> stories of searching, um, <laughs> uh, you know, going to libraries and saying, is there like a poetry group here? And one librarian was searching really hard and looked up to me and, and she just said, would you like to learn ukulele? <laughs> I, mean, hey, what? I was like, uh, no, I'm actually interested in finding poets. <laughs> but um, I stumbled on uh, Lit Youngstown's fall festival and I drove over and I attended and met Karen Schubert who's the director she is a fantastic person and um she could see that I was trying to find my tribe and um really helped me connect really helped me connect with um other poets um got me involved in Youngstown and on the planning committee. And then I got hooked into uh, like Cleveland and started teaching classes before COVID live for them. And then now I continue to teach um, on Zoom. And uh, in like, Youngstown, I've participated in the festival every year since as a presenter. So yeah, yeah, it's been great. Lori Kinser at the South Euclid Lindhurst Library has been terrific to me too. Um, I've done some things there for them. And uh, it, there's there's all kinds of places. <laughs> I need to go back and tell that librarian. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, I, that might actually be a good initiative just to arm libraries with knowledge of what they have around them. Uh, that, that, that could be a neat, neat like project for- Yeah anyone who's doing city initiatives do, do, do. yes yeah <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah they need uh, to know mm -hmm. yeah because cool. these organizations are terrific for not just poets but writers of all genres oh absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. and i'm glad you said laurie kinser because karen schubert gem of the state of ohio like she is one mm -hmm. of the most mm -hmm. like amazing people i've ever met and and uh Lori Kinser's name doesn't come up enough. She she does a ton because she's she she's at the Screeball Center, the the Screeball yes. Writers Center uh, in yes. South Euclid. And um, I mean, actually, Lori greenlit my workshop uh, in 2015. Like it's just she she's been everywhere and her imprints everywhere. But because she's like at that sort of removed director level, people don't know who she is. And it's yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um. 
Yeah, uh, that oh, that's so fantastic. So how does how does the writing scene in Ohio? I, I should ask why is Ohio better than Michigan? Well, now careful. <laughs> We're going to compare. Because my contract. Michigan friends are going to listen to this. Um, <laughs> Hi, Michigan friends. Kalamazoo <laughs> uh, is a hotbed of uh, active poets, and uh, my friend uh, Susan Blackwell Ramsey there says you can't throw a brick in Kalamazoo without hitting a poet. Um, and we're very proud of uh, the poets that arose from Kalamazoo, most particularly Diane Seuss, obviously, um, but many other wonderful poets. And if I start naming them, I'm going to forget somebody, so I'd, I'd better not. But um, there's a very strong poetry scene in Kalamazoo. We have Kalamazoo Valley Community College there. We also have Kalamazoo College, a liberal arts, fine liberal arts college, and Western Michigan University. So those three campuses offer a lot, but then in the community at large, there's just huge support and interest in poetry. So yeah, it's, it's different than how Lit Cleveland works and how Lit Youngstown work. Um, but they all offer something really special. How, how so? What's different? Well, um, when I was involved in Kalamazoo, it was strictly um, the Kalamazoo Poetry Fest. So it, it stayed in the, that lane, that genre, mm -hmm. right? Whereas um, Lit Cleveland and Lit Youngstown attempt more to pull in all the genres. I think Lit Cleveland does so many things, but what I'm mostly aware of is the classes and workshops they offer, which are just tremendous. Yeah. Um, whereas Lit Youngstown kind of focuses more on community outreach and their fall literary festival. So I see the, the fall literary festival in Lit Youngstown is a lot like uh, Incubator that um, Lit Cleveland does. Yeah, but it it's their primary focus, I would say, in Lit Youngstown. I would agree with that because I, when I when I got kind of knowledge of both, I was blown away by how big Lit Youngstown was when I attended it. It was, it was clear like this is a well oiled machine. Not that Incubator wasn't. It's just it's just more. You know, it's bigger. It's you know that they that that they, a lot of investment went into it and. Yeah. Like it's Cleveland. their primary focus, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they and they're they're planning all year round. I remember mm -hmm. hearing Karen when she was leaving uh, the the reading at the church this year, where they had yes. uh, the, the the church reading. She was leaving the room, and she goes, "Time to start planning next year." You know, <laughs> it's yes. just it's automatic. Uh, reminds me of like um, Nightmare Before Christmas when they finish. <laughs> the awards ceremony and they're like all right 364 days <laughs> to the next yeah. <laughs> let's go but yeah yeah it's always on our mind how to uh include more people how to make it larger how to make it better how to make it stronger um yeah yeah, yeah it's impressive and and of course let let cleveland has a, an unbelievable programming catalog i can't oh, matt and michelle work very hard I, I don't even know how they do what they do uh yeah they they have so many events going on it's it's crazy yeah wow. no they they have a very small but extremely dedicated staff and, the, and then they pay every artist that does you know it's, yes. it's, it's, it's insane yeah yeah um yeah. 
Okay. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> I don't want to get <laughs> too off topic. So you taught at Kalamazoo College for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How did that shape your writing and how did, because I, I know, you know, once you teach, you get an added perspective on craft mm-hmm. and, but you weren't teaching poetry specific. You were a communications professor. I never taught poetry at the college level now. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm wondering never. like, how did that change you? How did that adapt your personality? Well, um, you know, my my degree field is communication and interpersonal communication, public speaking. I also designed a class that I taught at KVCC for years called Oral Performance of Literature. And in that class, I taught students to do, um, I guess what you would call is, is a theatrical reading of all kinds of literature. And when I taught that class, I would often introduce students to the idea of let's meld a theme of several poems together and present it as a program. And and the students were like, no, we don't want to do poetry, you know? And yet, as soon as we started, I I would say, see how concise it is, see how uh, gripping it really is, Um, see how you can use different voices. Um, They they really began to love poetry yeah. by learning how to read aloud dramatically. In fact, it was their favorite genre. Um, Interesting. So that was really exciting for me to see how students turned on to poetry just by really getting into a piece, memorizing it, delivering it, aligning it with other pieces of literature. And we always had a public performance at the end of the semester. Um, And they did magnificent things. So yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Well, that's beautiful. And and I I think that like, if you can stand up and conquer two major fears, which is one being vulnerable and two being vulnerable in front of an audience, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that that sets you up with with crazy confidence. Why why do you think the uh, poetry was their favorite genre to to do? Um, I think it was emotionally intense in a concise form, and I think they reacted to the music in an unconscious way, and I think they saw that poetry can have a very strong narrative, which I think sometimes they didn't really see when they were taking high school poetry, you know, and they had to learn poems that maybe weren't relevant to them. We chose contemporary poetry often. um, And, and they just responded. I also tried to find poetry that was um, written in the I pronoun so that the voice became theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started seeing those kinds of poems as the same as like a theatrical monologue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they learned to love it. Yeah. And it, there's more freedom than a monologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think confessionalism, it's funny you say that. I, I have a real quick story to tell. I was, I was doing a, a workshop for high school students. And mm-hmm. I showed them modern poetry, like confessionalists. Mm-hmm. I think, do think confessionalism is a great entry point for people mm-hmm. because they realize that the self-expression can be so varied. And mm-hmm. um, 
<laughs> we're doing this workshop and we got through reading like a Kim Adonisio poem, which I, I love. I love Lucifer at Starlight. I think it's so beautiful. But anyway, we're, we read you this poem and this guy in the back just goes, man, Robert Frost sucks. And <laughs> I couldn't help my, I started laughing because I was like, I mean, I get it. He's, you know, his work came out <laughs> almost a century ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sad to see sometimes the way um, people have kind of been taught poetry, you know, well, let's look at it. What does it mean? Let's find the beat. Let's find this. Instead of just reading it, letting the words wash over you and just sort of responding. Um, yeah. So anyway, oral performance was wonderful in in getting my students to really connect with poetry, which wasn't my goal. My goal was to teach them how to deliver, but the end result was really nice. That's so cool. Excellent. <laughs> so what do you teach now, what, now that you're doing workshops? Because you have well, um, I've I've been teaching uh, some craft. So I love to teach um, a revision uh, class. I call it um, a baker's dozen recipes for half-baked poems. So I have 13 approaches to how to revise. The other workshop I love to teach is Gregory Orr's essay on uh, the four temperaments in poetry. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he says that you are born with one of four temperaments. You, You have a talent for narration or story, you have a talent for imagination, metaphor, and image. You have a talent for music. Um, or you have a talent for using form, right? And so I love to teach that so that people start to see what is my temperament. And then Gregory Orr suggests that a good thing to develop is go deeper into your natural element or partner it with a complementary one. So, um, and, and there's, there are certain pairs that go well together like wine and cheese, right? Yeah. So um, if you're all imagination and music, it, your, your poem can get a little abstract and vague and kind of out there and mysterious in a, way that you don't want but let's say you go for music and story um now we're on the ride with you even if it's something like jabberwocky you know twas brillig in the slide each rose did gyre and gimbal in the wave okay that's musical but i get that there's a story there and so the poem holds together for me right so uh, but if you're all form and story, then you're probably writing um, an essay or a journal article, right? Yeah, okay. So that's that's an exciting one to teach because people start looking at their own strengths and how to develop them. But right now I'm proud. Uh, Barbara Sable is a wonderful poet who lives in Akron and a good chum of mine. And we designed a class called Reading Contemporary Poetry. And I explained to Matt and Michelle, my goal was to have 
uh, a reader series where we read three books by three contemporary poets or people who were scared to pick up a book of poetry and read it from cover to cover. Just like, maybe scared isn't the right word, but just like not inclined. Yeah. Sure. Right? And um, we've done it now five sessions. So we've covered 15 different contemporary poets and we have a very strong following of people who just keep signing up saying, I never really read a book of poetry from the first page to the last page, like I would a novel. And we we talk about craft, we talk about poems, and we have absolutely wonderful conversations. Yeah, it's great. Cool. Mm -hmm. I, I'm struck. I think it's so important knowing how to approach and read poetry. If you had to give some tips or like some general advice to someone who might not have thought about this before or who might not read poetry on the regular but wants to what would you say i think two things um it's very helpful to hear it aloud very helpful and so when we do this class uh we ask the people attending um to pick one or two favorites and before we talk about the poem, we always read it aloud. So we all hear it at the same time. I think that's critical. The second thing is I would say to a person, don't worry too much, just, just hear it and respond to what moves you or interests you. Don't worry about analyzing it. Don't worry about figuring it out. And if it leaves you cold, move on. There's another one. Always. There's so many poems. <laughs> you know, there's so many poems and they're short. It's like it's it's kind of like going into an art museum and looking at the art and saying, I really respond to that. That one, what? That one, what? That one, what? But you know, then you get to another one and you're transfixed. Just don't worry too much. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's awesome. I think it's just, you know, I don't know. I, I think we can overcomplicate it. Just enjoy, enjoy what you enjoy. Well, and, and I think that's what's awesome about it is that mm -hmm. it's refreshing to hear someone with, you know, a half dozen books or whatever say, you know what? This isn't like a complicated puzzle. Just enjoy yourself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh. And don't feel defensive if you don't enjoy a certain thing. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think anybody who's used to submitting to literary magazines has that attitude on the flip side. Like if someone doesn't enjoy my work, you know, big deal. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of other people who will. Exactly. Yeah, no. exactly. So let's, let's turn book. to, let's turn to your writing. Cause you, you've, uh, so you've gone, you've, you've published five collections and I'm curious what you, how you feel your trajectory has gone from mm -hmm. start to finish, you know, like whether mm -hmm. your craft has evolved, whether, you know, it's how you approach the writing process or how the work changed over time. How would you describe your arc and the, the nature of your writing from start to finish? Yeah. Thank you. I think I, I'm interested in that question. Um, my first book was a chapbook 
Um, and it was, you know, the collection of the poems that I got published. <laughs> it was kind of like, okay, <laughs> here's what I've done, you know. So um, that work, uh, the poems in that were mostly speculative and a little abstract. And that was kind of in vogue when I was writing at the time. Um, I'm proud of it, but I think I moved from that book to um, The Clock of the Long Now, which is uh, a full-length um, book. And it was, um, it's kind of divided into some speculative and some about my father who was suffering from uh, Alzheimer's over 10 years mm. and my own way of processing it through poetry. And then there's a section in that book that I wrote in the persona of a fellow who used to be a whitewater guide in the Grand Canyon, Jake Luck. And um, in my family, we were whitewater kayakers and rafters. So we'd been to the Grand Canyon a few times and I knew about Jake Luck. And he was quite an amazing person. So I wrote these poems in his book voice and used a lot of liberty and imagination, which I could get away with because he wasn't alive. So um, I could get away with it. And people really responded to that. So I started moving toward persona, really enjoying the persona poem. Um, that was the clock of the long now. Then <laughs> I, I, I constructed Composing the Rain, which is a chapbook that won the Grayson Chapbook Prize. And it, it was very different. Um, it's a book which is a narrative from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because it's sort of an allegory. At the time I'd been traveling and I went to a monastery, uh, you know, I didn't go to a monastery. I went on a tour to a monastery and started thinking about people who were monks living and kind of the, their whole life spent praying and what would be, that be like. And at the same time in my head, I was thinking about John Lennon's Imagine, you know, there's no country, there's no hunger, there's no none. So I created a world where my characters in this world, their whole purpose for being is to compose music that will bring beauty back to the world. So again, speculative, right? But my characters are very bizarre. My characters are musical instruments and garden implements. Rakes, mm -hmm. shovel, oboes, harp, piano. <laughs> and what they do day in, day out is compose so that if they get the song exactly right, they could manifest back, say, horse in the world. So I'm speculative, the world's kind of lost a lot. So, and the shovel and the rake and the wheelbarrow have to construct the thing, the horse out of twigs and moss. And if they all get it exactly right, it will come back. So this whole book is the story of one season um, with and they have love affairs, which, you know, I mean, the bow saw is in love with the violin. Well, that's never going to work out. 
Because as soon as he touches her, right? <laughs> right. Which, which he attempts to do. And the clarinet is kind of, oh, she's kind of based on um, the Audrey Hepburn character in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, I've never seen that movie. Uh, Go Lightly. I forgot her first name. Anyway, because she she looks like Audrey Hepburn, right? Oboe does. It's very slender and sleek and black and silver. And I don't know. Um, and the wheelbarrow is protective and the piano has a personality and the harp is kind of a superhero. I, I'm making them sound silly, but in the poems, they're quite serious, these characters. Um, and the oboe and the flat face shovel are best friends and they ponder philosophy and uh, I don't know. So it's it's an imaginative book that as a narrative. That was a big step forward for me in terms of thinking of a whole book. And I really loved that idea instead of like putting a bunch of poems together and saying, do these hang together? Creating a arc. Yeah. Interesting. Then um, the sea was never far. I did ancestry re research and discovered a secret my grandmother kept for her whole life. So I tracked it to the London archives. I went to London, found family in Norfolk, England, met them and discovered all these stories of England in um, pre-World War One, and the herring industry and the North Sea, which is where they all lived and, and the mills in Norfolk. And this book, The Sea Was Never Far, is in the voices of those people. Okay. The miller, the herring fisherman, the young boy who works on the ship, the Scots women that gut the herring, the basket maker, the barrel makers, and my grandparents and their parents and the millers and all of that. It's been, it's been, people have been very interested in that because of the ancestry research and I don't know, people in Norfolk are characters. They're just, <laughs> I mean, they have nicknames for each other and they have a vocabulary that I adore. I wrote whole poems just to use this word <laughs> that I loved. That was a Norfolk word. So. What, what's one of them? Oh, golly. Um, well, here, here, a North Sea smacksman will call bad weather a breeze. If it's a real smashing snorter, he might let himself go and say it's a smart breeze with a big lump of sea. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, they just, they just had this fabulous vocabulary and, and these, these nicknames for each other because in the town, there might be several with the same name. So there'd be fat and fatty, duff and dumps and jello and poachy and foreboat and Eric <laughs> Kettle, who we called Teapot, right? Who, 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 I mean, I just fell in love with this stuff. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like the natural, a, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> a phrase like uh, my dad, my dad said he was dead as a mitten. You got to write a poem with the dead as a mitten in it because, <laughs> you know, it's just great. 
<laughs> what's so what's so final about a mitten? I don't know, but <laughs> I had a um a book of fishing terms, a glossary of fishing terms, and I went through that book and just circled fishing terms and said, okay, there's a poem, there's a poem, there's a poem, there's a poem. Because <laughs> of the vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. I like the natural progression from uh, a breeze to a snorter. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a big lump of sea. Yeah, yeah. They call uh, I don't know. There, the vocabulary was just wonderful. So then, ice hours is was very satisfying because I could follow an absolute narrative arc, and when I wrote Ice Hours, I storyboarded it, essentially, mm. and said, okay, in this month, I need a poem here to describe what was happening. So I could get up, I, I, I could get up like I imagine a novelist does and says, okay, I got to write myself out of this dilemma in chapter five, and that's what I'm going to do today. I've never had that experience as a poet of of getting up and saying, okay, I know exactly what hole I have to fill, you know? Yeah. Usually I get up, look at the page and say, I gotta write a poem. What am I, you know, you're always starting from zero. Yeah. Ice Hours offered me the opportunity to just step in to a point in the story and flesh it out. I always had a place to go. Yeah. And, and in, with, with Ice Hours, why did you pick this particular story? What about the sinking mm. of the endurance and the expedition appealed to you? Um, back 20 years ago, I was on a whitewater trip and one of the fellows on the trip, I'll, I'll plug him, Leonard Pierce told me, um, you know the story of Shackleton? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you know the story of his other guys on the Aurora? I said, no. He said, nobody knows that story. And so he told me the story because he's fascinated with things like that. And I... And I got um, the book, The Lost Men by Kelly Tyler Lewis, which is about the Ross Sea men. And I began feeling sad that these guys never had their story told. And I, I lived not too, you know, I lived in Michigan, so it wasn't hard to get to Chicago. And the Chicago Museum had um, an exhibit about Shackleton all the pictures, you know, the James Baird model and stuff. There was nothing about the Ross Seamen, nothing about Aeneas McIntosh, nothing about the Aurora. They were totally ignored. And it bugged me. And I went in the gift shop and I thought, well, at least they'll have the book by um, uh, Kelly Tyler Lewis, The Lost Men. I mean, at least the bookstore will have that book. Nope, nope, it wasn't there. <laughs> Everybody loves to tell about Shackleton. They never pay any attention to Aeneas McIntosh and the Aurora men who were his support team. And so I wrote the director of the museum <laughs> complaining, <laughs> <laughs> saying, I'm really upset. I went there. You'd had nothing about the Ross men, no books about them. I'm upset. You know, I never heard back. 
you should send it again. I'm upset yeah. that the expedition of my first email didn't arrive. <laughs> and and by the way, here's a book. Yeah. <laughs> but um I I think everybody always talks about Shackleton and obviously he's larger than life and obviously his story of saving his men after the endurance sinking is monumental. But these guys were on the other side of Antarctica, starving, suffering, to lay his supply depots, never knowing he wouldn't come. And they were stuck there two years and and three died. And and people, you know, Shackleton, the story of Shackleton, he didn't lose any of his men. Yes, he did. He lost three on the other side of the continent. And I felt like their story should be told. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's an obsession. It, that's that's all it is. It's an obsession. Fair enough. <laughs> out of the uh, out of the four talents, would you say yours is narrative? No. What no. is it? I'm curious. It's. Um, I think I'm a music and form person. Okay. Um, I. I can. I can write a narrative poem, but I'm, I don't have a gift for fiction. And to me, the, narr- the story um, strength is a person who can, who can create a short story or a fictional character. The, this isn't fiction. The Sea Was Never Fire isn't fiction. These are not made up, even going back to Jake Luck, I elaborate, I, I imagine, but I don't start from zero to make a story. Yeah. And I, I'm terrible at short stories. <laughs> not a self-ascribed Franz Kafka. <laughs> so, um, that's okay. I am too. That's why, you know, I'm doing <laughs> Yeah. So, with uh, I, I do want to ask about that because you've got this historical, this exhaustively researched book, which yes. that's super evident. I mean, you go from how the dogs' experiences were and like how those yeah. fit in to, you know, the diary. Some of the poets' poetry seems to be centered around like diary entries because you'll list yes. like 1915 by Victor Hayward, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what was the dividing line for you between the history and the truth uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the truth of the events, I should say, because you're bringing mm-hmm. out a different truth. Um, the, the history and the events and yourself and what you added. Yeah. Well, and that was the creative fun, right? Yeah. Um, you, I had access to a lot of like the, the book, the last men was very helpful in giving me a lot of facts and uh, the chronology and, uh, everything that happened. And then I had access through museums, polar museums, and a couple of books to um, the actual diaries of the men. And then two of the men wrote books, and I have their books, and I read them. And that helped me get a sense of uh, their personality, their vocabulary, um, and their frustrations. But I can't, I can't, I can't just put their diaries, you know, I have to, I have to enter myself. So, you know, I, 
I tried to enter the imagination of them once I understood their personalities and they were radically different personalities. Um, you know, there was Aeneas McIntosh who was the Scottish captain um, who really wanted to serve Shackleton to his best and he was raised in the Navy and upper crust, right? And then there was Ernest Joyce, who'd been to Antarctica four times and worked for Shackleton, but he was a real rough and ready guy, loved to uh, have his jollifications, which means he was a drunk. And, <laughs> you know, and those two men vied for leadership, and they were very different in terms of class, in okay. terms of, um, and, and they just couldn't get along. Um, and so that was fun to imagine their arguments, which there were several of. And then there was this Anglican minister who was a Cambridge teacher, Spencer Smith, who was this uh, guy who just kind of joined at the last minute. He could be a photographer, they decided. I'm not really sure why he was picked, but he was absolutely unsuited for this. Um, completely unsuited. Did he survive? Or, Was he one of the survivors? No. Yeah. No. He, uh, but those men called Spencer Smith on the sledge 40 days, keeping him alive. And every account I read about Spencer Smith, he never, ever complained. He always tried to be positive. Um, Interesting. Up uh, and then there's um, uh, Wild, uh, whose brother Frank was on the endurance. And it was Frank Wild who stayed with the men when they were on Elephant Island and kept their hopes alive. You know, it's okay, we're going to be rescued. Pack your stuff every day. The ship would be. He single-handedly, I think, kept those men going. That was Frank Wilde. Well, his brother, Ernest, was on the Aurora. And oh, Ernest wow. had the same personality. It's all right. We're going to survive it. And alone in the tent with no food, he kept Mac, Macintosh and Spencer Smith alive while the others went to get food to bring back to them in the blizzard. So there's something about that family, the wild family that had absolute optimism. I mean, Ernest would sing and argue religion with Spencer Smith just to get his dander up, just to keep him alive. Oh my God. He, he was, th those two brothers were remarkable. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, forgive mm -hmm. the low hanging fruit, but that's wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, he said he was wild by name and nature. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that, that, that line's in the, yeah, in the collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was a quote from one of uh, the diaries, yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. So um, you, you, one of the, one of the big, this, the, one of the big comparisons you make, because you start, you start the collection off, the poem you write at the beginning is the mm -hmm. first poem of the book, and it, yeah. It, it compares Antarctica to what could have been formerly Eden, you know, mm -hmm. and by the time we get halfway through it, we get a glimpse of hell where now Antarctica is hell. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into the narrative for you? 
Well, when I when I was writing the book, um, I realized all my characters were men. The whole book was men's voices. And I needed a counterpoint. Uh, I needed a female voice. And I I used um, Gladys, who is um, Aeneas's wife back in England. She comes in three or four times. She always comes in in the form of a triolet. Um, and she's talking in her head to him. She can't write letters to him, but she wasn't enough. And I, I wanted to write in the remove of the continent. The continent doesn't care about these men. They're, she is not even aware of them. I wanted a contrast in feminine and masculine voices and the intimate men and then the big telescope back of the continent and epics of time. So I created Antarctica as a female voice. And, and when I was writing this, I had newly moved to Ohio and I was really lonesome um, for about the first year, disoriented, lonesome until I found my tribe of poets. Um, and that experience comes through in her voice because Antarctica too separated from the other continents and drifted down alone to the bottom of the world and then froze. I mean, her, her <laughs> Antarctica's um, weather was just like South America at once, one time. They know that because they've dug under the ice and found the beach bushes and evidence of a tropical climate. Um, and so I have one line in a poem, you know, so cold and alone, I fell away. And that's how I was feeling when I first was here. So I, I can't remember your question I, or if I answered it. <laughs> no, you, I th you did. You did. Because okay. <laughs> I think it was, it's fascinating. That, that was such a deliberate, I mean, it, it all craft should be employed deliberately, but it mm -hmm. was I didn't realize I'd stumbled across something so incredibly deliberate. That's, mm -hmm. that's yeah. I, I really wanted a female voice. And um, so she, a poem in Antarctica's voice or the ice begins every section of the book and ends. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, would you mind reading us a second poem? Take us home. Oh, sure. Um, this is a poem uh, when the men have um, accomplished their goal of laying the supplies, but they get trapped in a blizzard of 12 days and um, they're, in, they're in a world of hurt. Trapped, returning, the 12 day blizzard. And there's an epigraph from Ernest Shackleton. As regards to disaster, they each have their two tablets of morphia. February 22nd, 1916. For the fifth day, the blizzard claws their two tents smaller, crushes their bodies tighter together. Shrieks rise and rise, rattle ribs, quake the bowels, then die back. Joyce hears wild tenor drift from the other tent. 
So they're in the land of the living, Joyce writes in his diary. Wild recorded, had two biscuits and a chunk of snow. Now to comfort his teammates, he sings to Matt and the Padre, describes the pub he'll own, imagines he'll tell this story while pulling a pint. To escape his agonies, Spencer Smith dreams of a pleasant afternoon in Gray's Inn, of Christmas candles, the organ crashing out bars of Adeste Fideus. Macintosh writes nothing. All his pluck was sapped, shambling here. He lies in a pool of water, reindeer hairs stuck to his face from the rotten bag. Four dogs curl in a torpor beneath deep snow. There's no food left for them. Joyce exhausts himself, digging out channels for the dogs to keep breathing. Hayward sketches Ethel's profile in blue ink, adds no other entry but the date and is marked for ditto to the growing column beneath the word blizzard. Richards props up in his sodden bag next to Hayward and Joyce to work the map again. He writes, it would be very easy to die. February 23rd, 1916, morning. The storm slackens, Joyce bullies them to dig out. The effort requires half the day. They cannot shovel a minute without doubling over, gasping. By late afternoon, they carry Spencer Smith from the tent, secure him in his bag on top of the sledge loaded with equipment, and the four men and four dogs grind forward. Mac stumbling, roped to the rear. They lurch through deep snow, blinded and bent by the return of hurricane force winds. After an hour, like a log burnt through, Mac crumbles and falls. I cannot go any further. Wrap me up in a deck cloth. Leave me. Another calculation. If they don't save the dogs, no one survives. Ten miles to the Bluff Depot if they can find it. Hayward, Joyce, and Richards will go on. Wilde will have to stay back to keep Spencer Smith and Mac alive. That evening, Wilde writes, it's blizzarding worse. I hope to see them in three or four days time. I wonder if I'm right. And the Padre writes, we had a great and glorious cup of tea to warm us and sat up talking very late, the wind still howling. Amazing. Thank you so very much for sharing. Um, oh, sure. So Happy to. <laughs> this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Marion, not only thank you for joining us, but thank you for joining us in the at risk of alienating some of those Michigan viewers, the far <laughs> superior state of Ohio. <laughs> well, you said that, not me, Jeremy. <laughs> no words in your mouth. That was all me. You can come at me if you want. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Likewise. Likewise.